0: Can we talk about what we're trying to actually accomplish? I know you want to build a space or a building, and I know you want me to focus on this part of it, but can we just talk a minute about what is the opportunity that we have before us to do something different? Can this space eradicate hunger? Can it eliminate inequity within this particular community? What are the other conversations that we can have to do that? Now, we have developed what we call inclusive design intersections to drive some of these conversations. But We need practitioners to bring this lens to the conversation uh, that we're having with developers and you know, all those that are responsible for making what we say the imagined uh, real. So it's important that we bring that lens as emerging professionals and professionals to shift the conversation because it, it starts there. Then you can align all the other processes and resources around achieving it.
1: Welcome to a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Farida Abu Bakari and Ian Rolston. Farida Abu Bakari is the project director at the award-winning architectural and design firm, Ajay Associates. Prior to that, she lived and worked through Canada and the United States with architecture, engineering, and planning firm HOK to build an extensive portfolio. Farina uses architecture and design as tools to support and empower the communities she lives within. She is the Emeritus Community Affairs Director of Atlanta's NOMA Chapter, the National Organization of Minority Architects, whose mission is to champion diversity within the design profession. Her work with NOMA led her to co-found and chair BETA, Black Architects and Interior Designers Association, a Canadian nonprofit organization which promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession of architecture and interior design in 2019. Ian Ralston is a design director, principal, thought leader, and speaker who's worked with transformative firms in Canada and in the U.S. across multiple sectors such as hospitality, education, transportation, retail, corporate, and residential. Maybe nothing under the sun <laughs> Ian hasn't uh, had a hand in. Uh, previously worked at firms Yabu Pusherberg, uh, Hirsch Bedner Associates, NHOK, and clients such as Marriott, Hyatt, Mandarin Oriental, Starbucks, Rogers, TD, RBC, and Wind Developments. Ian has founded Decanthropy, a platform for new thinking in the inclusive design space. He develops content that transforms the creative process for people, organizations, and businesses. Thank you both for joining me today. Really excited to have you. Uh, thank you for having us. Also excited to have Chris Morgan, our great co-host here as well. So to start, I think it would be great for us to just get sort of the highlight reel from both of you on, you know, what were the, you know, I kind of gave over the bio. I kind of talked about some some elements of it in terms of your career, but, you know, it'd be great to just go over a little bit of the highlight reel on what were those inflection points in your career that, made a difference to where you are today? Maybe we can start with Farida.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much for that great introduction, and thank you for having us. So for me, uh, like you mentioned, my career began at HOK, and that for me was incredibly important at the start because I was from a global background, I'm Nigerian, I'm African-Canadian, and you know, I, I grew up throughout the Middle East. I was born in Doha and Qatar. So I really wanted a firm that reflected that global identity. I wanted the opportunity to travel and to work on projects worldwide. And, and HOK opened a door to, to that, that sector where they were in every single market. They had 24 offices globally. So it allowed me to kind of I started my career in Toronto when I graduated from Ryerson. I did my most of my education or my education in Canada, but allowed me to enter the American market, which was something that I really felt was important to experience. Um, so I spent a lot of years, uh, my first years in in Canada, but my formative years in really in the US, like building my portfolio, and that's really where a lot of my growth happened working in that um, the Canadian practice of HOK, sorry, American practice of HOK it has been around for 60 plus years. So it allowed in me with a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge, and thought leadership that it kind of grew me, groomed me into a, you know, an asset for the Canadian practice as well. And so returning back there to Toronto, that practice was where I met Ian <laughs> and and just kind of from there building upon sectors learning about business development that curated a shift in my career that you know I started to look at the sectors that I hadn't encountered or had the opportunity to enter. And, and that's really where Ajay Associates for me was the best move because as an African and a Canadian it really felt important to understand that side of my my heritage and you know and really contribute to the continent. I felt that there was a shift really in the past Five years really of, of, you know, trying to find what your identity is and and trying to find that through practice, I felt was incredibly important. So thus arriving here and and exploring that through the project typologies we work on at at our firm and, and just trying to find ways of giving back at the same time to lend a hand through beta, which is something that I've been able to do. For
0: me, really, I think my design story started shortly after leaving OCAD the Ontario College of Art and Design, and having to prepare a portfolio in order to try to search out or at least prepare myself to to align um, myself with the firm that I wanted to work for. And and understanding that that took, although school was fantastic, I felt that there was still more work to be done to be ready to engage in sort of the real world. And having started with Yabu Pushelberg early in my career, I learned there that there was a a true craft to design. It wasn't um, necessarily just about putting elements together, but there were considerations that were sort of deeply ingrained in this idea of uh, materiality and and scale and proportion that were important in order to have an impact on end users. And so being curious about sort of the world around me, I, I Continued certain seeking out, uh, much like Farida, to work for uh, international firms, and was uh, fortunate enough to be hired uh, at the Atlanta office of Hirsch Associates, which was still is one of the, the leading hospitality firms in the world. And having been sponsored by a CEO who recognized that there was some skill and talent, and insisted on in putting me in front of clients in, in order to engage, really helped to sort of shift the trajectory of my career. But also I remember one particular story being in Beijing in a conference room with uh, 16 other individuals who spoke uh, Mandarin. I did not speak Mandarin, they did not speak English, but we conducted a a three hour design session with a pen and some paper. And that really instilled in me the, the power that we have to communicate through design. And so the next shift really was, as I continued to do work, I began to realize that there were a couple of things missing in our consideration um, in design development from an equity standpoint and and realized that in some cases we were perpetuating inequities in built environments. And that really sort of spawned this sort of uh, idea and focus for me personally on inclusive design. And have since uh, formed a decanthropy in order to really tackle inequity in built environments in order to eliminate them. Uh, so, I have been grateful for all of these moments, in particular, the opportunity to work with uh, Farida uh, when we met at, at HOK. So, it's good to see you, Farida.
3: I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about uh, working together. What was the work environment with you two where you started to develop a dialogue and Especially interested in what lessons you remember picking up from working with each other.
2: Ian, for me, when I met him, was an instant mentor, whether he liked it or not. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> I loved his approach, not uh, just to design, but his business approach, his acumen, his client relationships, the way he approached that end, I thought was incredible. He was able to really find a more human way of connecting that didn't have anything to do with business it was really about building that relationship at a personal level and through that allowed whoever the client was how sophisticated or or not about design feel as though they were being understood being heard and also participating in a way that they were part of the process a part of the design process which I think at core is who as Ian is a designer, is the most important, and I think that that's why Decathapy makes so much sense and is is so incredible because that really is just the way that he worked, even in that scale at HOK, where you know at a corporate firm, it allows you a brand and an image that might necessarily align, but trying to find ways that aligns with yourself because it's so much bigger than you. All these kind of larger firms, finding who you are there, which I found Ian found his footing, and was also able to curate a studio that believed in that as well. I think that's the the most important, why he's such an incredible leader, because just through interaction with him, they were learning, but even more so, his style of mentorship was one of ownership of the work you do, not one of directing. It was building confidence, empowering them to kind of know, you might not know the answers, but you find it through the work find a way to tell the story is really Ian love storytelling and that at a core is really why he's so relatable and it shifts its way and it shifted how we worked as a studio. And so I felt even though he was on the interior side, any opportunity to garner knowledge from him or any kind of setback or obstacle I was having, having him as a resource curated, you know, even better leadership skills that I could have found for myself on my own and really kind of formulated the type of leader I wanted to become.
1: That's good. Yeah. Ian, do you have a...
0: Well, first, I'm going to have to send the check to uh, Farida <laughs> for, for those wonderful words. I think that the first thing that, that struck me about Farida is that she just has a, a natural sort of light uh, that sort of emanates and she has sort of a, a wonder about things. And I I specifically remember uh, traveling around uh, different offices within uh, HOK and, you know, people say, do you know Farida? You know, how is she? So there was something about this name and this person, Farida, that clearly had made an impression on people. And I think it speaks, uh, again, to her as an individual, as a natural uh, connector. And we know in studio environments, you can get really sort of bogged down with work and your head down and focused. But Farida found a way to, um, you know, be around encouraging people, making them laugh. I can guarantee you if there was a a burst of laughter somewhere in the corner of a studio, Farida was in the middle of it somewhere. So I I found that fascinating. And even just as our relationship uh, sort of grew in, in mentoring, I haven't found a more sort of enduring individual in terms of soaking up information and wanting to do the the right thing and I actually use her as an example when I'm speaking to students as a way of being a, a way of seeing the world and wanting to engage with it
1: i want to dig a little deeper because i always find it very interesting like from anecdotes are pretty powerful tools to help paint a picture or really drive home in a tactical way, almost an example. And I'm I'm very curious from Farida, if you can point to a specific moment, like a specific lesson you learned that at a moment of where Ian brought, you know, did something or, or something, whether you took away something directly from that event.
2: I think just in the approach, I mean, in HK, we had, you know, we went through a lot with each other. I mean, we spent a lot of time there and the practice grew and changed and evolved. And I think just the way that the changes happened, maybe were abrupt and sudden, but just watching the way the studio was changing. Um, Cause I, I was with HK, you know, eight, almost nine years. It was, you know, I've watched it grow and especially with Canadian practice. Like I'd been there watching it change and evolve and try to find itself. I think just watching how Ian approached some situations that I felt I wasn't equipped for. The tools that he'd used to kind of be a sense of calm and stoic kind of leader, even when things seemed like they didn't make sense and were not going to be something we would be able to grow from him, always finding the silver lining. I think I started to, although I'm a pragmatic and, and also try to tend to be negative <laughs> about situations, just internally, I think he found a way of making it seem as though, it, although it's not okay today, it'll be okay tomorrow. And we're going to grow from this. And I think always trying to find what will grow from a situation that might not seem that there's a good outcome. And I think just learning from different leadership styles, I think me and and Ian, you know, we, we obviously aligned in the way things were, but I think it was important that, you know, everyone's leadership styles are different and management styles are different. And that's something I learned from working at so many different offices in HOK is that every leader has a different approach, different vision, different ethos, whatever they want to achieve, They have different ideas of what excellence is. And for Ian and I, it's that human connection. We worry about people, less about the product, less about the money, which I don't know makes us very good business people. (laughs) But (laughs) I think in a way, people that, you know, we're sought out simply because we care about how people feel. We want people to feel welcome and we want people to feel like there's a space for them. And I think that that more or less, comes through and, and, and how we've traversed our careers because it really, the shifts were never about, you know, not alignment of vision of the companies because It was just simply because we felt we were growing and evolving and wanted new spaces to kind of encourage and, and grow new studios and new networks.
1: Ian, on the flip side, since mentorship is often a two-way street where it's, you know, we hear it oftentimes like this thing that just kind of one, only goes one way, but, you know, I think there's so much learning to be had both ways. So I'm curious there was a specific moment for you where you learned something from Farida?
0: I think really it was the vulnerability in some moments where we needed to arrive at some clarity. I took a great deal of sort of pride in understanding the responsibility that she would have selected me to sort of be that way with. There's an extreme degree of trust when you are trying to work through challenging circumstances to ensure that you know, they're confidential and then, you know, you're going to be heard and there isn't a sense of, of, of judgment to say that you did the wrong thing or, or, you know, you should think of this differently. So I think there were scenarios in those sort of moments of clarity, whereas for me, I, I felt sort of the the responsibility to really ensure that she understood that she had everything within her to address the issues. But sometimes we just have to sort of quiet the noise a bit and let our natural ability sort of rise to give sort of that clarity. I think Farida has the leadership skills to be a transformative uh, individual in space. And I think she needed to hear that. And, and I think it's our responsibility as mentors to not necessarily give answers, but just to point to the fact that you have this. Try this, maybe see how it works. You know, And if it doesn't, try something else, but you ha- you have the faculties within you to definitely address this challenge.
3: What were some of the big ideas at HOK that laid a foundation for your professional skill set?
0: The big ideas. I think there was, for me, uh, some runway to sort of chart your own course. Specifically, you know, at my time there, we were growing the hospitality sort of side of, of the business. And it was up to us to sort of figure out what was going to be our unique voice in that space. And you really have to sort of step back and make the distinction between your voice and the company voice, or find a way to sort of allow your voice to speak within the context of the company. And I think in doing so, you, you realize that, that, again, there is a responsibility to be your authentic self. And as we both share with emerging professionals, is that when you are in a professional environment, it isn't necessarily all about you, <laughs> but you have to bring you to the stage and then really championing things that are, are meaningful both for yourself and, and the company. And that reconciliation mm-hmm. is important.
2: Yeah, I think also the the breadth of knowledge I think at HOK is incredible. I think what they've built as an organization over the past six, six years is incredible with the offices. Mm-hmm work together to curate these massive projects, um, it's no small feat. I think when you're in it, you don't realize that when you're out of it, you're like, yeah, five offices working on one project cohesively to bring something on time and on budget is no small feat. And I think that now looking back, that level of collaboration is something that I think every firm should seek out. I think it has its obviously positives and negatives, but in the end, it grows your knowledge uh, base for each of the, for each location. You're kind of growing together and evolving together project by project, which is something that, you know, only really happens in studios. So to have it at that scale is incredible.
1: Are there things now, Farida, that you've structured at Jay Associates in terms of like the things that you've learned along the way in your relationship with Ian as a mentor? How do you structure your own way of thinking about leadership for yourself personally? in your team or the, you know, and and maybe you can break down even just a little bit of the structure for those that might not be aware of like how you, how you fit in within the organization.
2: Of course. So I'm a project director in Accra, Ghana. And so ultimately leading small teams here, our work is, is really focused on the continent, focusing on building the practice here, building projects here, and really on understanding, you know, the market, and how to give back. I think that's the most important. We try to use as much as possible local consultants, try to uh, local talent, and really kind of not being that typical firm that enters a space and kind of creates the whole Western experience where you are. It's very important to understand the building methods, the techniques, the materials that are local, and really understanding and paying respect to the heritage and history that came before and all of our products. Uh, Projects like research is such a huge component of the work that we do, so that we're well versed in really our client, well versed in its community, and I think that at that sense, that core is really why our studio is so powerful because we really spend the time of understanding the foundation and basis of the design vision before we pursue it, and I think that in itself is why a lot of it is is such a standout because it's it's so. Commemorative of the the design that came before it, and in the spaces that came before it, and understanding the environment, um, you know, the typology of what it led to what it could be curated to be. And I think our teams and the way we've structured it is incredible because, again, we're operating as one firm. And I always kind of joke with people with the scale of where I went from one office in HOK being 150 people to now a whole entire office being 150 people. It's shifting in that scale is just the way of your thinking. So, although uh, like Ian mentioned, I, I have always had a knack of kind of connecting everyone in every office. I always knew someone in any office in the HOK that could help me with something. This is very different and it's a smaller scale for me, which makes it a lot easier for me to manage, even though before it felt, it felt seamless. And so I'm still that connector. I'm still, we're still pursuing work in Canada because of my Canadian connection. I'm still very much involved with the New York office and at that end in business development in hopes of kind of embarking on that market. And so I think because of that, I'm still remaining most myself because I'm still using my network to build and using that end to kind of pursue new work and build on the work we have right now.
3: Ian, uh, earlier you mentioned this idea of sponsored by a CEO. And even before our call, Frida and Ian were talking about this, there's a distinction between sponsoring and mentoring. Then Frida, you you also said Ian has a particular way of approaching mentorship that's different than others. I'd love if both of you could unpack a little bit of how you model out mentoring models and and variations on that. And I'll I'll start with Ian, uh, if you would, please.
0: I think for me, mentoring is, it it has to start with sort of the the human sort of tangibles. I naturally want to listen um, and to hear, you know, what you're saying, but most importantly, what you're not saying. And perhaps that might point to, you know, uh, an area where you might be lacking confidence or, you know, where we might need to sort of focus more of your energy. It's a very sort of human sort of interaction at first, and it's flat. I never want to come into a mentorship relationship sort of presenting myself as above. It is that we are going to learn from each other. I'm going to share some information. There's things that you're going to you're going to share with me. And out of that interaction, we're going to find out of our, our skill sets, things that we can enrich ourselves with. So I think really sort of flattening the approach to mentorship uh, is extremely important and staying sort of humble and just, just be a human being. I say that a lot, just be human and care. Let's care about the things that matter to you, and let's care about the potential opportunity that we have to change something outside of ourselves. And, and I know it sounds a little, some people might say that it's cheesy, but I really think that's the meaningful part. It's not about sort of just taking or, or, or getting or consuming, you know, your, your knowledge or your access to your network, but it is really seeing how you can enrich the interaction and the connection that you're having with that, with that person
2: it's really incredibly important that every relationship is kind of a level playing field. Like you have so much to learn. And I have mentees now where I'm always seeking out, you know, like how, how are you feeling about the student environment you're in? You know, what are you learning from it? What are the like the pros and cons of it? Like I always want to know what their work environment is like at that level because it kind of teaches me what I can do better as a leader at, at a managerial level, you know, what is it that you, you like and you don't like? And I think the younger generation now is, is very much more self-aware than what we were before. We were kind of taking what we got, right? Like, we're like, this is just how firms work. Like, <laughs> this is how you're treated. And this is how people before you were treated. And you just, you just put up with it. Whereas now they're just like, no, I have a life and I'm leaving it by. You know, it's, like, it's very different because I always, I joke that, you know, we always want to, people to suffer as much as we did. And it's like, but why?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: And this generation is that whole new generation where they have no interest in suffering. And it's, this market is, you know, it's not, it's not as sought out as before people aren't jumping over each other to enter the design market. It's just not, you know, something that you go into make money, which is really now in, in the the environment we've created, we need to make money to be able to live in these cities that we want to live in. And, you know, it's not the first choice. And so I think now because of that mentorship is incredibly important because we want this next generation to feel that they have a platform that, and, you know, they have a a network they can tap into. So they continue to pursue design. They don't leave because I think before people were like, you know, people leave, they come, they go. And, you know, it it is what it is. It's not, it wasn't built for them. Architecture wasn't for them. But now we're realizing well, we'll be without architects if we continue this model. So what can we do to make these environments and this industry better for them so that they can actually thrive in it and not feel like they're, You know, at war with every single step of their careers. And like, I think getting licensed in itself is such a long process. And for me, it was. And, you know, and then trying to then also find ways to to leverage the political aspects of any firm that you choose, whether it's small, medium, or large, you know, trying to navigate leadership roles. And especially now with that big cusp of a lot of people in the next couple of years or succession planning, what does that look like? You know, mm-hmm. what firm do I want to be a part of that, that growth. And so I think also that's causing people to be a lot more in, um, in self-aware of themselves as well. Like, who do I want to represent me when I'm you know retiring and this company has to live on beyond me And I think they're realizing that they can't just pick the other man in the room who looks just like them. It's just not sustainable. And so I think that that mentorship for me has been the most, at least in my past couple of years, has been the most shocking of seeing who sought me out to mentor me as well. Because I felt as though even if the mentoring relationship wasn't one of, like I said, where I was learning from it or that, you know, I was really, like it was give or take, it was more or less like they were sponsoring me in a way that they felt even if this relationship doesn't go anywhere, I know that I have kind of given her something that she can build upon. And I'm going to also tell people about her so that she can also have a network that she can tap into, even if I don't have that resource that she needs, which has been for me, the most integral part of my growth as an architect is being able to have, well, now at HK and outside of HK, because I've kept in touch with everyone that that made a place for me and, and grew me to who I was, but staying in touch with them, really, they ultimately have given me tools to be able to know where to look when I don't know something and not be afraid to have weak points. And when I do have weak points, Mm -hmm. guide me to to fix those weak points and grow those things into strengths. And so I think ultimately those, my mentorship relationships have shifted, not simply because I left, but because I'm evolving. And so they, they can't help me as much now. It's more so like, how can I just put you in the right rooms? And put you in the right conversation so that you can grow your career the way you need it to grow. And you know what you're doing, so just go.
1: <laughs> Do you find, uh, just to stay a little bit on this topic of, let's say, um, the new generation coming into practice today and, and their expectations being very different, which I always, I've thought a lot about, like, you know, the impact of technology and how easy things are in some sense, right? Where there's no question to me being able to get access to something immediately or to sort of, you know, it's almost like every... You know, culture sort of sets it up that way, where you have these expectations about where you work. Well, why isn't it that way? Why can't it be that way? You know, right. everything else, everything else in the world, you're being told to. Everything is possible in a sense, right? right. But how, why is this work structure has you know static or or not or not flexible or whatever? I'm curious if if for both of you, you've seen well, one. I, mean, I think there's a and this has been written about recently. There's a big shift now where employees are starting to have more leverage than employers because of shifting. And it's not even just an architecture, right? I think there's a lot of being written about like the mass exodus of just people leaving their jobs after COVID because they're looking for relocation or some other, you know, there's a reshuffling happening. How have both of you kind of taken that environment? I know you spoke a little bit about just kind of being uh, mentorship as one way, but is there anything else that like maybe, people are expecting of today that you're noticing that will likely change really quickly, or, you know, I'm just curious more to what your thoughts on that. Maybe Ian.
0: I would definitely say that I think there is a generation that is expecting to have a voice because in their, and I should maybe qualify that, expecting to have a voice in their workspaces because they have a voice in their personal space. And traditionally with, within the and in industry, you sort of take what you, what you get. You sort of have to go through, earn your stripes and, you know, take your, your lumps uh, and you sort of move forward. I think what's important, and we try to share this with emerging professionals, is that if you want a voice, well, one, you have to have something to say. So before you have a voice, develop it. Find what is important to you. What is your authentic self and, and what you think you can really throw your, your, your skill and your passions around and give it meaning beyond just your immediate ambitions within a firm or to meeting or connecting with someone. But how can it go beyond that to serve you know, your, your community or, uh, um, or address, uh, you know, for me, again, a system in inequity or how can you improve upon someone's uh, life? So your voice has to have purpose. And I encourage emerging professionals to to do the work. It just doesn't happen. You just can't repeat a couple of, you know, phrases from, you know, someone that you've heard on, on in the movies, on television or on your sort of social feeds. But you have to find your voice. And then when you get behind your voice and you have something to say, people will listen.
2: I think that that in itself is really what it comes down to. Like, I think. The power of your identity, I think people don't really understand it until more recently and people have been able to shift that into the workplace. I think we've always been very careful about who we are at work and who we are at home, and now those things are kind of commingling, and there's no space for them to separate. Anytime soon, and so now we've become whole selves in these spaces that you know we are with our coworkers, but also with our families all the time online, and and it's just it's kind of melded us into this melting pot where it's unclear what is your voice of your community and your, your company? And like, what can I post? Also, we were talking about social media, because social media now is kind of like a reflection of self. What am I putting out there? And, and, mm-hmm. and, is my, is my work voice aligned with my personal kind of agenda of what I want to put out there. And I think that that a lot of people that, that reach out to me about working at the various firms that I've been to is just really like, you know, will I fit in in the studio? What's important to the, the firm? Do you feel like, you know, do they care about di efforts? You know, are there a lot of women leaders like women are asking those questions and young women, especially they want to make sure that when they enter that space, it's a safe space can I grow there? Am I going to learn? Are people are going to mentor me? Are they going to be open to kind of growing my career there and letting me make mistakes and, and figure it out the process, or is it more, you know, a competitive environment? Am I going to crush and fail? And, and I think that it's just really important that firms understand that even before they step into that interview, they're doing the groundwork. I get messages all the time from people that just want to chat, like it's a 15 minute, but they just want to make sure that they place that they've, been contacted by is a place for them. And if it isn't, they don't really care if they pass that interview and they're okay with being unemployed. And so I think that's a very different space we're in, like Ian's saying is that, and like you mentioned, we're just like, you know, employers don't have the upper hand. People are putting mental health first, they're putting their space or family first. And I think it's a great space to be in because it, it's causing the industry to take a deeper look at themselves about what we've built and how we move forward. And I think as we were kind of talking about, you know, the, the topic of this, like, is my studio a community? Like, what am I doing to build that inner studio environment? Do people feel comfortable kind of connecting with their coworkers outside of work? Is that something they want to do? Or does everything stop at five and they walk out and they want nothing to do with anyone? Anyway? And I think that is something that as architects, we have to really engage better with. you know, with our communities, like we were mentioning. And I think that that's really where beta for us connected us outside of work. And we saw the power of that connection. So I think it shouldn't just be up to nonprofits like ours. It should be also firms that are doing that self-exploration of how can they not only align, but, you know, create platforms that align with them and and create connections that kind of reflect what they're their agendas are and try to find ways of giving back. I think that's the most important. Don't start your own. <laughs> Just try to uplift the ones that already exist and, and, and give a hand because a lot of the time, you know, it's voluntary and, and they need to exist in that way.
0: So, I would also add that there is a demand on leadership or leaders to lead. We know if we're, are, if we're transparent and honest that the A&D industry in itself has, has not been kind to a lot of people. It's an extremely difficult, ruling. Really, yes, rewarding industry, but it takes a lot to do what you do well at, at any level in this industry. And we need leaders now to help sort of usher in a shift in the approach in, in how we go about doing our work. Again, shifting more from this sort of transactional sort of exchange of ideas for fees to, to more sort of transformative sort of uh, opportunity focused um moments that we can actually create something that's unique. I think it's going to be important for the health of our industry and the the health of practitioners. And we as leaders have to now account that as a part of the economy of uh, operating uh, firms now. It's important.
3: How have you started to bring this thinking about community building as an architect to actual space design. So whether at the scale of an interior or a building or even an urban scale, I'm curious from both of you how you've been, what you've been trying out and what you've been seeing work or not work.
0: For me, really, it's to slow everyone down for a second and let's just talk. Can we talk about what we're trying to actually accomplish? I know you want to build a space or a building, and I know you want me to focus on this part of it. But can we just talk a minute about what is the opportunity that we have before us to do something different? Can this space eradicate hunger? Can it eliminate inequity within this particular community? What are the other conversations that we can have to do that? Now, we have developed what we call inclusive design intersections to drive some of these conversations. But we need practitioners to bring this lens to the conversation uh, that we're having with developers and you know, all those that are responsible for making what we say the the imagined uh, real. So it's important that that we bring that lens as emerging professionals and professionals to shift the conversation because it, it starts there. Then you can align all the other processes and the resources around achieving
2: that. And then I think from our lens, it's really, again, like I said, you know, we do the work of just the groundwork, community things that people don't want to spend the time on, that that research. I think that that at a helm puts it at an advantage, but also the workshops and connecting to people to that knowledge and kind of showing them the story. I think storytelling is really at the helm, why clients feel heard. Because when they see the thought process, I think often we, we jump ahead to the beautiful renders and it's like, okay, but how did we get here? <laughs> And so I think that the process in really in the programming of how we interact with clients, that shift of thinking of they need to know and understand that it happens from the sketch, but then there's so many other elements that come into it. And then we we landed here. I think that that in itself, educating them and making them feel like they too are, you know, a part of the process, but not only that. Knowledgeable and they can speak to it on their own. I think building that confidence is something we don't do often. We always want to be the ones in the room sharing that story. We never want them to go in. And so I think that in itself, when they feel that confidence that they can go share and that, that excitement, I think that makes them feel heard and seen.
1: What do you think is the potential for storytelling then at the level of communities? Not in the perspective of a specific project, right? We're like, okay, now we have this product on this site, let's, build a, let's go talk to the community, but more the pre work of like basically get around the question of how do we educate this community about what we do versus like, hey, we've already been doing this work in the community. They already get what we're about. It's your, your conversations at a whole nother level by the time that, you know, an opportunity shows up in that community, let's say what possibilities can exist in that front within the industry.
0: I think they're endless, um, and I think they're necessary for the future validity of our industry. We have to go and spend time. And I'm going to say this word that an equity consultant, a a friend of mine, really does not like. But it's it's the otherness, because we've set, unfortunately, a, a standard for what is considered sort of normal or right. And then everything else is sort of judged against that. It's not until we sort of eliminate those barriers to say, let's go spend time in this community with these people and share knowledge and understand what is meaningful to to them, that you can then sort of step back and start making the appropriate connections with sort of how you view the world, one as an individual, uh, two as a professional, and then start making uh, the right connections to have the right conversations about serving that community And it is, I believe, looking at what we do as professions as a service uh, to humanity. It's an awesome responsibility. Uh, Life happens in everything that we create in terms of space. And so we can imagine that, and I love to say it, someone is going to fall in love in a space that we design. They're going to care for our family or our sick loved one. So we have a responsibility to understand what is meaningful. To those individuals and to that loved one that we can then come alongside and support. And that is the fabric that we need to weave as, as professionals. So that that's why I say I think the potential is, is endless. We have to make the shift to that type of thinking.
2: I think that Ian's thought is identically bad. I think it's just as architects and designers, we have to think as people first and put design aside and just remember to be humans. And I think be evocative of those emotions that we feel as we design and make sure that. You know that that's emulated in a way that is carried on through the end
3: user. I think we can start yes. transitioning to the Q and A. Uh, we have a bunch of questions here. This is an interesting one here. So, I'm a 30 plus year old African American who has worked in human service field for the past seven years. Following the apex of the COVID 19 pandemic, I decided to make a career shift into the visual arts. I have an increasing interest in architecture provided I pursue architecture. I'd like to integrate social impact efforts and create spaces that optimize well-being within the urban context. How does one prepare to find work or a college space that would nurture this endeavor? What key advice would you have for someone in my position?
0: That's a a really big question. What, What I would say is to understand where you think you can, impact the space that you want to occupy, and then gather information to, I think, support where you think you can drive change, maybe seek out some people that are doing that type of work that you can engage with to give guidance. It's not necessarily to make the same sort of mistakes or or trip over the same sort of hazards that uh, others have gone through. And I think out of those sort of relationships that you foster, that, that the clarity and in where you want to go in terms of a school or a firm or a community that you need to connect to help support you along the journey and what will become clearer. I never like to say that there is one hard and fast path to your destination, but I think it is as Farida, it, I, I think models this so well, is she just grabs people along the way and says, come here, we're, we're, we're going for a ride. Uh, so grab some people and, and take them on, on the journey that you're on. I think that's the best way to go about it.
2: I totally
0: agree. Yep. I
1: wonder if along the way too, as this, this person is kind of exploring that with people that, that, that are working on this and building a community in, in, in their own way, if one even has to pursue a degree is sort of the question. You know, at that point, like you're doing what you want to do. Do you have to go pursue the degree in order to kind of like come back to it? You know what I mean? It's like something along that lens of like, you know, you can maybe craft your own specific space that is unique and still relevant and even maybe with more experience because you've invested so much time into that
2: i definitely agree with that i think it's important to not don't use anyone's journey as your model (laughs) you know yeah it, it just doesn't work i think that there's a lot of roads that haven't been traversed that might be meant for you that you're blocking out by worrying about what everyone else has done before you And I think that especially now where we're thinking without borders and without, you know, like country, it doesn't matter where you are, we're remote. This allows you so much flexibility of client base markets you could have never infringed upon because we were so inwardly focused during that time. So I think this is a really unique time to be doing a shift in career and a shift into design because it allows you to be so much more exploratory than we would have wanted to be a year or so ago.
0: Absolutely, and stay flexible. And we're in this space already. We have to learn how to pivot quickly. That is one thing, believe it or not. Uh, Farida has sort of taught me through our relationship. I have not seen many people as flexible as she has and able to sort of shift gears, all in alignment with what's authentic to her. But um. What a gift to be able to pivot and still retain uh, things that are central to who you are.
3: Got another question here. What is your biggest or main goal as a designer when you think about your trajectory?
0: I simply want to change the way people think about design. And I want to absolutely eliminate inequity in the built environment. That that is my single focus.
2: I want everyone to feel like they're a part of the process. I I want everyone to feel like they have a say in what design is. It's not meant for this elite group of us. Like you can have, you know, a knowledge base or an aesthetic that you align with and you can grow that. And you don't necessarily need to be a part of the industry, I think. Exploring that and making it as relatable as possible is the only way that will encourage a next generation, another pipeline to be interested in architecture and interior design. Because if it feels like something that is hard to grasp or hard to, to grow into, then how will the industry transform and evolve?
3: Is there a story that either of you or both of you could tell about working with a client or working with some kind of stakeholder group where they were able to shift in their development objectives. So the process became more equitable.
0: I think there are, we just had some discussions um, with a group that felt that they didn't understand uh, anything about the equity space. So we took them through quite simply answering the question, are you a human being? And at the end of the exercises, the answer was yes. So then the answer is yes, you can do this work because that's, that's the lens on which you're going to do it. And so we, we connected that understanding from an empathetic perspective to experiences that they knew personally, and then flipped it on his head to say, okay, if we're in this building type or within this space type, how would you eliminate feeling excluded or the anger that comes from that or the anxiety of not necessarily knowing if you fit in? What would we do to the physical space? to eliminate uh, those type of emotional cues. And so I thought it was a a great exercise. And and I'm I'm hoping that that thinking for me, it's all the way to the end of, of the project.
2: Same thing. Like I think even now, if I not just look at work, but even when we have clients now through beta contact us for work, I think ultimately people are, you know, they're looking to be, allies. They want to not only support us as an organization, they want to provide work. And I think that's incredibly amazing to have people that seek us out to make sure that there's a level playing field. Because really, this is all about equity building. I think people also, when they think of, you know, we started an organization specifically for Black architects and interior designers, and it's not inclusive And, you know, the space is meant for everyone. It's like, but I'm trying to level the space. It's never been before. And I think that we, we've learned that so much over the past, year that, you know, there there is a market for it. It just never was a consideration because we made up such a small percentage of the market that they never thought it was possible to kind of uplift such such a community. And so now seeing how our sponsors of firms and developers and universities have uplifted us, it's allowed a space where people understand that it's not about color, it's just about the lack of equity in design and how do we temper that? And is it through the procurement process? Is it through hiring process? Is it through, you know, mentorship, recruitment? Is it outreach? Like, what is it that we need to do to curate a a space where design is is for everyone? Like we keep saying over and over, but it's really, how do we make it feel as though the client has all the power in their hands to be that change for the industry? Because really it's in their hands. We as designers don't do so much in pen and paper and sketch and, and, you know, grow our studios and make sure that that platform is diverse. But if the client isn't seeking it out and asking for it, we have no one to kind of guide that process or even need to guide that process. And I think if that end user is the one saying, you know, no, this is what the future looks like and we need to be a part of that, that puts every firm at uh, a space where they feel that they have to challenge themselves to meet that need. And I think that that's ultimately where we're going. And I hope we continue to grow.
1: So we do have another question here from uh, Essence Morgan. Thank you for sending this, Essence. What advice do you have for young Black designers entering the architecture world?
2: I think what I've learned from my career is, again, your network is everything. Um, I think I see this on every single occasion <laughs> I if, if not for my network, I would not be here. And so I think it's incredibly important to build that. And not wait. I think as students, everyone is waiting for that thesis paper to be handed in and then your life begins. No, your life began as soon as you started to pursue architecture. And as soon as you entered that program and your academic, mm-hmm. that you should be building your network. Do not wait until you're looking for work to build your network. It doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve the process. It's about... Relationships come, they grow organically, seek throughout your professors, seek out through volunteering for your local organizations, whether if you're on Ontario, on OEA, TSA, Toronto Study Architects, Arido, these are the platforms in which you know that your eventuality in five, 10 years, you're gonna be a part of that, that community. So do the groundwork now and build that relationship so that when you enter that space, you're known, you know what to expect. It's not foreign to you. It's a space you're comfortable in because you've been in it for so many years. You've curated the relationships and it allows you to feel freer. You have more opportunities available to you. You know how the landscape works. And so it becomes a lot less overwhelming when you're just entering that, that first year of professional work and you're at the helm or at the hands of the employers or what job postings there are. It allows you to kind of seek out what you want to do because you start to rub shoulders that are doing the work that you're eventually going to do and I think that kind of takes a lot of the anxiety off of what your career could look like because you start to see it in real time rather than having that anticipation of school ending and so I just encourage you to do that now.
0: I think all the things that uh, Farida has mentioned it's empowering yourself. Empower yourself. There's a great deal of building that we have to do of our own individual selves when we step into some of these spaces. Sometimes they're uncomfortable, but if you build yourself up, as Farida suggests, you have a better sort of understanding of how to sort of address the adversities. And then I would challenge you to just design it, design what you want, design your school experience, design your career, and sort of follow that plan, that strategic plan and be prepared to adjust the, uh, along the way.
1: The word that keeps coming to mind is like intentionality. It's like being very intentional early on. And almost like, like I think, for, for, I mean, you just basically outlined the cheat code of like life in general. It's like, yeah. don't assume that the way things are set up don't have workarounds, that don't have other ways. Like if everyone's looking and that looks at the world that same way, it's you can look at it very differently, and really, and you know, because some of those things are, yeah, I don't know. It's just an amazing cheat code <laughs> to, to like <laughs> to, to all this. Um, okay, so I'm gonna we're gonna end uh, with one last question, which is the highlight question that we always ask our guests, and that is, what is the nicest thing or kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? We go professional, we go personal, it goes all over the place. We accept all and appreciate all. So, uh, Ian, we'll start with you since you, you looked pretty like you got hit really
0: quick by the question. Uh, yeah. Well, first there, there's been so many, but I would definitely have to, uh, give my wife, uh, top billing to say that she, she loves me unconditionally. And that has been the kindest thing to feel and to be loved just for being who you are. It's, it's fantastic. I
2: think that I think, the same thing in, in our careers, especially with the amount of work we do and how we work, our family and loved ones are ultimately the kindest because their patience in the way that we are evolving and growing as professionals, I cannot imagine. So again, and then also curating this crazy career that we have career path we've chosen with so many, um, you know, obstacles and, and, and loops that we never saw. And I mean, I credit patience to my parents and my husband for allowing the space and for, for me to explore all these different companies and and locations and, and just letting me grow as a professional, because, you know, as a woman, it's incredibly hard to do these things. And, and, you know, and I think it's just, it's inspiring other women to do so. And I hope that, you know, becomes more of a norm and, and we're able to kind of have a living playing field and, and grow in, in management and direct firms and, and create space. So
1: thank you for that, for both of you for sharing. All right. So uh, we're just going to wrap it up here and with a little plug for Monograph, the software you all know and love. Uh, at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to mid- medium-sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects, Chris, myself, about half of our staff right now comes from or has a relationship or knows someone or is just like really linked to architecture in some way. And we care. Right? We, we put ourselves in our shoes, our significant others are working in the industry or whatever. Right, we, we see it every day and we live it and breathe it and with our customers as well. So what is Monograph? It's a great way to actually see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. Keyword, beautiful. It helps you understand where you are in any given project, what your schedules and budgets look like. So we have something specific called the Money Gantt, which allows you to see today in relation to the time that's been input, are you above the line or below the line of your project? Are you on pace or off pace? And that way, project teams have real-time feedback in progress and against budgets without needing the feedback of a finance team to come in every month or every two weeks or whatever, right? Just like, Mm -hmm. "Mm i be able to make decisions. So you can start a free trial today at monograph.com or watch a live demo with Robert, our CEO, every Friday. Not many companies have their CEO talk to you want to talk to you about what you're going through and show you, you know, what we're doing. Every Friday, he walks through the product and answers any questions you might have. We have a link to it in the chat. Ian, Farida, Chris, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks, everyone, for joining thank us you. in the, uh, the attendees. beautiful conversations. For those that are looking to uh, learn more about Adjia Associates, I think Farida, I think the team is hiring. Uh, yeah. at AJ, so. <laughs> yeah feel free to look at job openings there. And Ian, uh, feel free to visit, uh, Chris dropped in the link on decanthropy to learn more about the work Ian is doing.
0: Thank you all so much, really appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Thank
3: you so much. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewen. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.